This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 21, Button Rolled. Prayers were over. The fire was low, the backlog covered with ashes for the night. Candles brought from the kitchen waited in a row upon the table to light the way to the bedrooms. In the corner near the alcove, a feminine caucus was being held. You and the children can come into my room, Kate, Miss Anne was saying. And Hugh can double up with Will. We'll put Alec with Jesse Moffat, and Jane and the baby can share Thorne's bed with Nancy Turner. That leaves the big bed down here for Cousin Lutie. There's still Lucius Goff and Otis Hughes, said Kate. We'll put them in the downstairs bedroom. A look passed between the Tomlinson daughters. That doesn't take care of Thorne, said Kate. She can sleep on the trundle as she always does when there's company. She won't like it. A voice came unexpectedly from across the room. Thorn will sleep where she's told to sleep, whether she likes it or not. The Tomlinson women turned with a start. They had not realized their talk could be overheard. Judith was standing near the table, about to pick up her night candle. She had taken no part in the domestic discussion for the simple reason that she was not interested. But she turned now and sharply addressed Thorn. You will sleep in the trundle bed, as Miss Anne says, and no acting the crybaby about it. Do you understand? Since Thorne had not complained, the reprimand seemed uncalled for. Richard said, There's no need to speak to her in that tone, Judith. He turned to his mother. The trundle bed is too short for Thorne. Why can't one of the younger children take it? Miss Anne explained that the younger children were doubling up as it was. Judith said, Thorne will sleep in the trundle bed and we'll hear no more about it. She turned to Alec Mitchell. Will you draw the bed out, please? She seemed to have taken charge of operations. But Miss Anne was still, to her sons-in-law, the head of the house. Alec, casting an inquiring glance in her direction and received a nod of assent. A queer tension gripped Judith as she watched Alec draw the trundle from under the bed in the alcove and pull it out into the center of the room. As she remembered it afterward, they were all standing in an irregular circle about the bed. Hugh Turner, Otis Hoos, and Lucius at the right of the fireplace. Richard a few feet away near the piano, herself by the table where stood the night candles. Jesse Moffat, who had already picked up his candle, was near the hall door. Miss Anne and her daughters, with the children, formed a group near the alcove. Judith saw Thorne, who had been standing near the hearth, move closer to Richard. Anger rose within her, followed by a queer nausea. She felt as she had felt that other time when she heard the clock strike, as though the temperature of their room had suddenly dropped. A strange premonition of impending mischief gripped her. She told herself that this was imagination and looked about to see if others felt it too. Then suddenly, while she was looking at it, she saw Jesse Moffat's candle go out. 
One by one, she watched the candles all over the room go out. The smell of smoking tallow was acrid in her nostrils. All the people in the room were in shadow now. She could not see their faces, only indistinct shapes. The only light was the glow from the fireplace, which fell upon the trundle bed. This was the bed on which she had sat with Thorn while she listened to Abigail's dying gasps. She stared at it now as though it were a sentient thing that could remember and accuse. While she watched with fearful fascination, the bed began to move. It trembled convulsively in all its joints, like a palsied old man. Its agitation increased until it rattled like a wooden cart rolling over a corduroy road. A voice rose thinly. She's doing it, Richard. Make her stop. Tone, cadence, pitch were like a reproduction of another voice, heard long ago when a cucumber cow was milked. Judith, listening, chilled. And then she realized it was her own voice she had heard. At the realization, she sickened and closed her eyes. When she opened them, the bed had stopped shaking, but she no longer saw a trundle bed. She saw a replica, in miniature, of the bed in the south room. Richard started toward his wife, alarmed at the ghastly pallor of her face. The skirts of his coat almost brushed the bed. Judith cried, Don't touch it! Stay where you are! The bed shuddered and began shaking as before. Judith closed her eyes against the motion, which made her seasick. When she opened them, the bed was still. It was again the trundle bed. In the silence that followed, there was no sound except her own heavy, half-strangled breathing. She turned on Thorn, screaming in that voice which did not seem to be her own. You did this, you little witch! This is another of your magic tricks. Light the candles, Richard. We'll see if she gets her way by frightening people out of their wits. Richard said. The candles were lighted some time ago. Judith looked about the room. Incredibly, flame flared every taper, including Jesse Moffat's. The shadows had receded. Faces were again visible. And every face was turned toward her in curious wonder. She looked to her husband. He was regarding her anxiously. Are you ill, Judith? She could feel every eye upon her, particularly Otis Hoose's. She was conscious of the fascinated interest of the farmhand. But she saw only Thorne's white face with dark eyes wide and watchful. She noted that from where the girl was standing, she could not have touched the trundle bed. Richard repeated his question. Are you all right, Judith? Quite all right, thank you. There was a concerted sigh of relief from the onlookers. Miss Anne began collecting the children, marshalling them to bed. Thorne asked, Am I to sleep down here in the trundle bed? No, said Richard. Anyone can see the bed is too short for you. There's a couch in our room which will do for me. You can sleep with Judith. His mother agreed. Put the trundle back in the alcove, Alec. 
Before Alec could obey, Judith astonished them all by countermanding Miss Anne's orders. Leave the bed where it is. We might as well have a showdown now as later, Richard, he said. I don't know what you mean by showdown. Thorne's cleverness tonight has gone to her head. She doesn't want to sleep in the trundle, so she performs a sleight-of-hand trick, making the bed appear to dance. Judith passed her hand across her eyes. She shrank from mentioning the weird metamorphosis she had seen. Now that it was passed, she told herself it had been a trick of her own eyesight, caused by the movement of the bed. She appealed to the others for support. You all saw the magic thorn work tonight. A dancing bed is no more remarkable than a burning match that disappears within a cloth without leaving a trace. Curious, half-fearful glances passed among the people in the room. Half-audible murmurs and whispers circulated among them. Richard said to Thorn, Cricket, did you do anything to the bed? Thorn said, No, I wasn't near it. That's true. Richard turned to Judith. Thorn was at least six feet from the bed when you screamed. I know, because you frightened her so she grabbed hold of me. Then who played the trick with the bed? demanded Judith. There's been no trick played with the bed. What are you talking about? Suddenly, she knew sickingly that he was going to deny having seen the thing which had frightened her. If you didn't see it, Richard, it was because you were looking elsewhere. It was perfectly visible, even if the candles did gutter down. The rest of you saw it, didn't you? She looked about the room, sharply at first, then fanatically, as she saw blank denial in every face. You know you saw it. You, will you? Jesse, Moffat, Lucius, why do you all just stare at me, pretending you didn't see Thorne's trick of Ledger Domain? You were kinder to Abigail. You were quick to assure her that you had seen milk come from a cucumber cow. No one answered her appeal. The men addressed returned her frantic gaze in silence that became so oppressive it was like shutting off the air to her lungs. She loosened the ribbon at her throat and looked about for a window to open, wondering why it was so hard to breathe. Her eyes bulged as though she were choking, and she breathed open-mouthed like a fish, gasping for air. Richard's voice seemed to come from a vast distance. No use having hysterics, Judith. I'm putting the trundle bed away. His brother Will came forward to assist him. Judith saw them whispering together as they pushed the trundle back under the bed in the alcove. She told herself that they were agreeing on some course of action to protect Thorn. After that, there was a slight rearrangement of sleeping accommodations, for when Richard said, There, that puts the trundle out of sight. A wail rose from an unexpected quarter. If you think I'm going to sleep in the alcove with a piece of furniture Judas saw cutting up, you're crazy. Three hundred pounds of quavering terror faced him belligerently. Cousin Ludy, her mouth still full of the coconut cake for which she had made a surreptitious trip to the kitchen, looked so ludicrous that Richard began to laugh, and his laughter eased the tension. <laughs> the furniture has not been cutting up, Cousin Ludy. Judas said it did. Personally, I'd take a schoolma'am's word against a farmer's any day. All right. If you're afraid to sleep down here, you can have our room, and Thorn can sleep with you. Judith and I will sleep in the alcove. 
unless Judith is afraid. Judith had recovered from her hysteria. Kate had brought smelling salts and made her lie down upon the couch. She sat up now, protesting that she was not afraid and never had been. She was merely annoyed at having tricks played on her. If Richard slept in the alcove, of course she would sleep there too. Whereupon the rest of the family took their candles and departed for rooms above. Still laughing at Cousin Ludy. The fat woman's round face, smeared with fright and coconut icing, had restored to the Tomlinsons their forgotten sense of humor. Richard showed Lucius and Otis Hoos into the downstairs bedroom. As he set the candle on the mantelpiece, he said casually, Judith has not been well lately. I'm afraid her eyes are bothering her. And that was the only apology offered for his wife's unusual behavior. Lucius was chagrined to find himself quartered with the lawyer. He had hoped for a chance to talk privately with Richard, and the presence of whose made this impossible. But when he was alone with his uncongenial roommate, he decided it might be as interesting to get the attorney's reaction to Judith's strange conduct as Richard's. Well, what did you make of it? He asked chattily as he began taking off his boots. Hoos was looking about him with interest. There was the first time he had been in the room in which his cousin had died. He noted the outer door in the south wall, the window in the east, the window through which the alleged bricks had come. He examined this window with interest. It was closed, its pane intact. Lucius, watching him, repeated his question. What do you think Judith Tomlinson saw tonight? The lawyer frowned thoughtfully. I'm more interested in what she sees when she claims bricks are thrown through that window, only to disappear. What do you mean? Asked Lucius. Whose indicated the angle at which the window set to the outer door? Bricks thrown through the window could pass straight through the door if it was standing open. Oh, no. On this point, Lucius was positive. The bricks always land on the floor. They make a loud thud when they fall. Has anyone heard them fall except Judith Tomlinson? Not that I know of. The lawyer shrugged. No one else has seen them, he said dryly. His attitude nettled Lucius. Why should you doubt the woman's word? Do you think she's making this up out of whole cloth? Do you consider her a credible witness? Countered Hoos. After the way she behaved tonight? I think her behavior tonight proves that something is frightening her to death, said Lucius stoutly. Are you suggesting, said Hoos coldly, that she saw something which was not visible to anyone else? Did you see anything? retorted Lucius. They undressed in chill silence, literally, for the fireless room was cold. Hoos snuffed the candle, and Lucius, already submerged beneath the bed covers, was surprised to find a misty light coming from the east window. The skies had cleared. There was a late-rising moon. He mumbled, Pull the shade, will you? Bad luck sleeping in the moonlight. With a disdainful sniff for the other man's superstition, Hoos drew the blind to its full length, then climbed into bed. Within a matter of seconds, both men were asleep. They awakened simultaneously with a crashing sound in their ears and a streaming light in their eyes. Did you hear? What the devil? 
Both men were sitting erect, rigid with cold and some nameless alarm. It was like waking from nightmare, still gripped with fear, but unable to recall its origin. Who's muttered? What was it? Shh! Whispered Lucius. There's something in this room. They waited, listening, their eyes strained to pierce the black shadows that lay on either side of the bed. The moon focused a spotlight on the counterpane. I don't see anything, said Hoos. Did you hear that noise? Yes, that's what woke me. Damn that moonlight. It blinds me. Look, the window blind. That's what made the noise. The dark green blind, which Hoos had so carefully lowered, had fallen. Moonlight streamed through the unshaded window. With a snort of absurd relief, Hoos climbed out of bed and found the fallen window blind on the floor. It had rolled itself neatly back upon its roller as it fell. Here's what made the noise. The spring in the roller suddenly released and the blind flew up with such a force that jerked the roller off the hook. Simple, eh? I suppose you thought it was a ghost. Lucius withheld comment. He pulled the covers over his head again while Hoos replaced the roller on its fixtures lowered the shade to exclude the moonlight, and crawled back into bed. One of the tools was bent. I straightened it. It won't happen again. I'll warrant. And turning on his side, the lawyer was soon asleep. But Lucius could not sleep. One of those wakeful spells that sometimes beset the healthiest sleeper descended upon him. He turned on his left side, he turned on his right, he sprawled on his stomach, he flopped on his back, but he could not regain the sound slumber he had lost. He threw off one of the many quilts because he was too warm. Then he felt a chill and pulled it back. He seemed to be smothering. He began to fear he was having a heart attack. Perhaps if he turned over, Dr. Caxton had said, that if the left arm pressed against the heart, he lay on his back, gasping for air, trying to summon courage to get up and raise a window. The room was suddenly stifling, but he was afraid to leave his bed, and he was loath to call Hoos, who had already been up once. The smothering sensation was in his throat now. Something was too tight about his neck. He tore frantically at the collar of his borrowed nightshirt. The collar was not even buttoned. It was opened at the throat. He tried desperately to call his companion. He could not make a sound. He was strangling, choking to death, unable to cry for help. When the crash came the second time, it did not even startle him. He was almost gone, but he knew, in his semi-conscious state, that the window blind had fallen again, and that somehow it had brought relief. Moonlight streamed through the pane once more, and though the window was closed, fresh air seemed to blow through the room. Lucius took great gulps of it into his bursting lungs and found that he was able to breathe again. The room seemed full of sweet, fresh air. Otis Hoos sat up in bed, muttering, This is getting to be a habit. But he got up and restored the fallen blind. Half asleep, he crawled back under the covers and was immediately dead to the world. He had replaced the rolled shade on its fixtures, but he had neglected to pull it down. 
The moon shone straight into Lucius's eyes. He was ashamed to ask who's to get out of bed for the third time, and, to his disgust, he lacked the nerve to do it himself. So he lay staring at the moonlit window, his body icy with sweat. He tried to remember afterward whether he closed his eyes or took them from the window, but he was never sure. He could not have told how it came or when, but suddenly it was there, a hand pressed against the windowpane. There was nothing dim or misty in its shape. It was as vividly outlined against the glass as though the room were a powerful spotlight. It was a woman's hand, slender, long-fingered, and so white that its texture seemed luminous. There was curious pathos in the way the hand was pressed against the pane, slightly cupped as though shading a pair of eyes that were trying to peer into the room. Yet Lucius saw no face, no arm, no body, nothing beyond the window but inky shadow, except for the spot of moonlight illuminating the hand. While he looked at it, he felt a strange compassion for someone or something that almost made him weep. As long as this pity gripped him, he was not afraid. As long as he knew no fear, he kept his eyes upon the hand. How long this lasted, he did not know. Then realization came, and with it, fear. Suddenly he told himself that he was looking at a hand that had no arm and terror swept him so that he cried out hoarsely. Otis Hoos sat up in bed. Lucius pointed to the window. The hand was gone. He did not tell Hoos what he had seen. He could not. He was still in the grip of a nightmare that tied his tongue. He told himself that in the morning he would tell the lawyer of his experience and let him question it if he dared. But he could not speak of it tonight. So when Hoos climbed out of bed for the third time and drew the blind, shutting out the disturbing moonlight, Lucius turned on his side and went quickly, soundly to sleep like a man drugged. He did not waken until voices and footsteps beyond the hall door warned that it was morning, and the rest of the household was astir. Whose was already out of bed, the two men dressed in curious silence. Perhaps it was only the natural glumness of the early morning, but for some reason Lucius's resolve to relate his nocturnal experience began to dissipate with daylight. He was certain the lawyer would not believe him. 
Whose would discredit the whole episode as a nightmare? The thing should have been told at the moment, before any doubts, even his own, had time to germinate. Already Lucius was beginning to wonder if he had been the victim of an exceedingly realistic dream. And then, an odd thing happened. Whose, in dressing, dropped a collar button. It rolled through a crack under the closet door. The walls of this closet were unfinished, and rough two-by-fours left a space of several inches where floor and wall failed to meet. Who's cursed lustily when he saw where the button had gone. Damn the luck. It's rolled down the hole. Lend a hand, will you? Your fist is smaller than mine. Lucius's long, slim hand slipped easily under the floorboards and retrieved the missing button. Likewise, a bundle of rags stuffed between the sleeper and the floor. Lucky those rags were there. They kept your button from dropping through to the cellar. Whose did not answer. He was regarding with queer interest the handful of rags, which were not rags at all, but a homemade doll with a velvet ribbon tied round its neck so tight that its head lulled foolishly to one side. When Lucius saw the doll, his face paled. Have you ever seen this before? Asked the lawyer. Lucius nodded. He had an uncomfortable sensation of being on the witness stand. There was no doubt it was the same doll. Lucius remembered it only too well. He reluctantly admitted as much. I wonder how it got under the floor of that closet. Maybe it fell down there by accident. It couldn't have fallen through a crack that narrow. The implication was obvious. The doll had been hidden under the floor. Sharply, Lucius recalled his weird experience of the night. He debated whether or not to tell the lawyer. Desire to prove a point overrode prudence. Briefly, he told of the hand he had seen at the window and the peculiar suggestion it carried of eyes peering into the room. Both men glanced at the window from which the blind had fallen three times. It was on a direct line with the spot where the doll was found. For once, Hughes had no ready argument to sustain his own skepticism. He recalled what the doctor had told him about his cousin's death, that she had choked to death from no apparent cause. All that he had seen in this house, all that he had heard of it, suddenly assumed a sinister significance. Suppose, for the sake of conjecture, mind, I don't claim to believe any such thing, but suppose your experience last night was something more than nightmare. Do you think it was in any way connected with the secret of the doll's hiding place? I do, said Lucius. That means you believe this doll was responsible for my cousin's death, said the lawyer. But Lucius was not prepared to go that far. Oh no, how could it be? Knowing poor Abigail's fear of this thing and her nervous start at the time... I should say the sight of this doll with a strangling cord around its neck would have been sufficient to frighten her to death. Lucius, now thoroughly alarmed, said hastily that he did not think anything of the kind and suggested that they put the doll back where they had found it. But this, who's refused to do? In that case, then, we'll show it to Richard, said Lucius, and on this point they finally compromised. They talked to Richard after breakfast, behind closed doors in the bedchamber, for Lucius made it clear that what they had to tell him was for his ears alone. 
Richard listened calmly to the account of the falling window blind. Even Lucius's nocturnal experience failed to move him. But when Hoos took up the narrative and told of the rolling collar button and what was found beneath the closet floor, every trace of color drained from Richard's face. There was no question of the shock he received when Thorne's doll was laid before him. He regarded it for a long moment in silence. Then he said, Thank you, gentlemen, for coming with this to me. I should have destroyed it long ago. I'd forgotten it was there. You mean you know about it? The lawyer's sharp query betrayed collapse of a rapidly building case. Richard said coolly, I put it there myself. For a second, the two lifelong antagonists faced each other in open hostility. Lucius, the onlooker, thought, Richard is lying and Hughes knows it. My late wife had a morbid fear of this doll. Richard explained, So I hid it where she could not possibly find it. In her own room? said Hughes skeptically. Where no one could find it, said Richard. There are children in this house. The doll was their plaything. The one place they were never allowed to play was in their mother's room. He said children. Both men noted that he pointedly referred to his own small boys, ignoring the girl who had made the doll. As for your experience last night, Lucius, I ask you please not to spread that tale around the country. There's nothing extraordinary about a falling window shade, and your dream of suffocation is not remarkable, considering that from boyhood you've suffered from nightmare. I've slept with you too often to be fooled by that. Richard smiled at his friend good-humoredly, but a spot of color burned now in each cheek. The lawyer said, Do you consider that choking string around the doll's neck part of your friend's nightmare? Richard's eyes blazed. At last, he made no effort to hide his feeling toward this uninvited guest. I've tried to treat you courteously, Otis Hughes, because of your relationship to my children. I don't know what you came here to find, and I'm neither interested nor alarmed. But I do ask you to leave my house, because I don't like your libellous insinuations. Perhaps it was the unlooked-for explosion. Perhaps it was the word libelle which brought the lawyer to realization that he had nothing but dreams and toys on which to found his vague suspicions. He was much too astute to risk a suit for damages, so he took his departure forthwith, leaving his luckless companion to get back to town the best way he could. Don't worry, Richard. Otis won't do anything. He's no fool, even if he is mean as Garbroth. Lucius tried to reassure his friend when the other man had gone. Suppose he did find Thornstall with a string choking it. No court in the world would call it. And then, at sight of Richard's face, he stopped, appalled at his own words. I mean, the doll had nothing to do with Abigail's... He floundered helplessly and gave up, muttering something about business in Woodridge. He asked if he might have the loan of a horse. Hey everyone, it's Valerie here. I'm the director and narrator of this mystery book by Margaret Eckhart. Have you guessed the title yet? I wanted to give a shout out to all of the cast, 
because some of them played multiple characters. Adam Abrams, he's another Canadian uh, being represented in this book. And he plays old Judge Shane, the twins from Bridgeport, the gatekeeper in episode two, as well as Jimmy Turner. Angel Black, she she has just been amazing. She's filled in all kinds of blanks throughout this book of casts who have one-liners. Here's a list of hers. Bishop's Widow, Martha Shook, Ellie Barkley, Jane Mitchell, Jenny Barkley, Mrs. Pruitt, and Nancy Turner. Ava Eames, she's another audiobook narrator that I've gotten to know over the last few years, and she plays Cousin Ludi. Carolyn Sen plays Miss Anne Tomlinson, who's probably my most favorite character in the book. Thanks, Carol. David Boisvert is my cousin, and he's down in the Nashville, Tennessee area. He started out helping me support the book by playing some of the background music, the piano. He plays a miscellaneous male at the end of the show. He does all of my piano backgrounds except a few. And he also plays the infamous Lucius Goff with his hat tilted just so. Garrett Odell, he plays Will Tomlinson, Richard's brother, the Sentinel editor, and Mr. Fairchild. Jack Hewson, he comes out of Australia and he supports us with Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Jack Reisider hosts a podcast called Darknet Diaries, which I got to listening to through my husband. Jack plays the voice of Otis Hughes. James Seabrook, he comes out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and he plays the voice of Dr. Caxton. Now, James, he also runs a recording studio called Two Bodies of Water. So check him out. Jason Schnell is the next on our list, and he plays a couple of different roles in this production. He's also a family member as well. So thanks, Jason, for filling in. He reads the Bible readings, and he also plays the role of the drummer salesman. Next up, we have my husband, Jeff Moss. He plays the restaurant manager, and he's also the wonderful voice that introduces all the titles. Jen Davis, she plays two characters, Kate Turner and the miscellaneous female at the end of the story. Joseph Morani Jr., he plays Henry Shook, the neighbor. Kyle Marshall, he's also a local Calgarian. He plays Pete McGraw and Alec Mitchell. Kylie Morgan, one of the stars of this book, she plays Judith Amory. And I'd like to thank Kylie for just hanging in there and really committing to the story over the last couple of years. Next up, we have London Moss. She plays Thorn, or AKA Cricket. She's also my daughter. Matt Sen, who's Carol's husband, he plays the voice of Doc Baird, Richard's dear friend. Next up, we have Peggy Davis, who's Jen's mom, and she plays the voice of Millie. And I just also want to thank Peggy because she was still recording even though she was moving from one place to another during this production. 
And then we have Rafe Telsch. And Rafe, thank you very much for all the effort you put into this. Man, some of your performances gave me chills. And just hanging in there as our main character, Richard Tomlinson. And then we have Rain Cruz. Now, Rain is Jen Davis's roommate, or was at the time. And Rain actually does wrestling announcing. She plays the role of Abigail Tomlinson. Next up, we have Rod Schultz, who's also a local Calgarian. He played the role of John Barkley, Richard's dear friend, and the pastor, Brother Jameson. And then we have Sam Sprenger, who started out with just a couple of lines as the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. But then he moved into Jesse Moffat's role. And boy, did he ever do a great job. Um, the last but not least, we have Zane Telsch, who's Rafe's son. He plays the role of Ricky and Raji. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all the cast and all the characters they played. Thank you, everyone, for such a great performance, commitment to this amazing project. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. Give them unwittingly and with conflicting purposes conspired with her to keep Richard in ignorance of what was going on. I don't want anyone near me but Richard, he asked. How long has she been like this? I found her in this state when I came home this afternoon. Had anything happened to upset her? I'll tell you later. He administered a dose of laudanum. Isn't it time you were in bed? She looked at him with grave amusement. Isn't it time that you stopped treating me like a child? To the doctor, she explained, Richard doesn't want to talk in front of me. 